Coming up, readings beyond the raffle and Theoryland approved conjecture. Deep dive into the spells and scrolls of nerd culture. Absorb Stormlight. Home sympathy. Arnas, Sayadar, and Sayadin. This is Phantology. You may have heard of us. Alright, what's up, Amians? This is Stephen and Ben from Phantology with your Don Shard review. So Don Shard came out a week ago or so, and this is a really tight timeline because it came out and then Rhythm of War is actually coming out tomorrow as of recording. We'll see when the episode actually comes out. But Don Shard seems to be fairly essential for reading Rhythm of War. We're not going to talk about any of the pre-release chapters, but in the pre-release chapters, they've already covered some things or at least alluded to some things from the events of Donchard that you may be a little confused about if you haven't read the book. Yeah, it's not essential to read, but I mean, chances are if you're willing to read a 1200 page Rhythm of War book, you're going to be willing to read a 150 page Donchard book. But the one downside is that there will not be an audiobook for at least a year, it sounds like, or for about a year. Yeah, it's going to take some time. I guess uh, Michael Kramer and Kate Redding, who are supporters of Phantology, actually, uh, they, they may be a little backed up or something. I'm sure they have a lot of projects going on. But Don the right. uh, audiobook is, is a little stretched out, but it's only about 200 pages. So it's a quick read. It's a fun read. I would say you should do it. I mean, when we say that it's essential for Rhythm of War, it's kind of hard for us to know because we haven't read Rhythm of War yet. So we really right. don't know. We don't know. But I mean, I guess I'm going by words of Brandon for that, where he's said that it's not essential. Like he said that it would help, but not essential. Yeah, I would say if you're a mega fan, you're going to read it anyway. If you're a casual fan, you've probably been reading Stormlight Archive and had a lot of things that popped up and you're like, oh, I have no idea what that is, but I'll just move on. So you can just kind of file these types of things in that category. Right. Like, for example, if you haven't read like Warbreaker yet, then this is going to be a similar thing where it, like there's a character like Azure that is from Warbreaker, but y- y- it's not essential to have read uh, Warbreaker to follow her character in, in Stormlight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, great comparison. So as we actually talk about the book, I give it out of 10. I'm giving this like an eight. I really liked it. And I have some personal reasons for really liking it that we'll get into a little bit, but what was your ranking of uh, this novella? So I guess the one that we would like do a direct comparison to would be, oh, Edge Dancer. And right. that's been so long for me since I've read that book that I have a really hard time remembering it. So it's hard for me to like rank it compared to that book. But I yeah, I would say an eight. I really enjoyed, not to do spoilers yet, but like the the Cosmere tie-in at the very end was awesome. And so that, that to me, it kind of elevated the whole book. And so, yeah, I would say eight to eight and a half. Yeah, I think it's pretty comparable to Edge Dancer. I mean, that would be the direct comparison. I, I'm kind of like you. I don't remember too many of the details there. It was about Lyft. It was a little cheesy. Lyft's not my favorite character. 
There were some major tie-ins towards the end of that one, similar to this, similar structure, I guess, but this one was better. This this was a better novella. Yeah. And so, Stephen, are we doing a non-spoiler review for this book as well? Or just I, I think that's about it. I think I think okay. we just did it. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I guess to break from the podcast, like we we had started the pattern of doing a spoiler or non-spoiler. You know, yeah, it's a little tough for it. I, I figured, you know, with this one with the shorter book, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a little tough to do that. So that's going to wrap up our non-spoiler review. We liked the book. We thought it was really fast-paced and a fun read. Eight out of ten for both of us. Not an essential read if you're not a, if you're not a huge Stormlight Cosmere person. But if you are, then it is, and you'll enjoy reading it. Yeah, and I guess to add on to that, it might be worth kind of going back and reviewing Risen's interludes before this. Yeah, for sure. Specifically, the one from Oathbringer, like it's the it's like interlude thirteen. And it details how um, her Batsk, I don't know how you pronounce that, but her her teacher, Seems right? yeah, essentially gave her, had commissioned a ship to be built. And it's supposed to be like the most technologically advanced vessel on the seas. And he essentially gifted it to her. And that interlude features Cherry Cherry using her powers. I, I, I imagine Cherry Cherry. As a female Larkin, but I actually don't know. So uh, Cherry <laughs> Cherry is using its powers uh, to suck up the stormlight. So, so that's something that's going to be essential. I mean, you could go back to the Words of Radiance and Way of Kings interludes as well if you want more of her character. But I think Oathbringer is probably the most direct tie-in to what's going on here. If you really wanted to remember everything, you should review some of the stuff that happens with Lopin as well in Oathbringer. Specifically, how he swears the second ideal, I thought had some good callbacks uh, in this one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not essential to go back. Like I didn't go back and review anything. I did a reread earlier in the year, like probably like three or four months ago. So it was relatively recent, but I mean, it's pretty self-contained, right? So you, you don't worry about reviewing too much for this book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a great summary. So that's it for uh, non-spoilers. Go ahead and go uh, read the book. Now, before we go into spoilers, if you like Phantology, you can find us online at www.phantologybooks.com. Our full catalog is online, and we are going to be covering Stormlight Archive, specifically Rhythm of War, in extreme depth. We're planning on putting out one episode per part. There's five parts in the book, so look forward to five episodes on Rhythm of War. If that's, I mean, if the 1,200-page book wasn't enough, then you have lots of... Uh, Lots of minutes and hours of Phantology to listen to. And if you want to support the channel, you can do that at patreon.com slash Phantology underscore books. So let's get to Dawnshard. Yeah. So we've kind of started this new pattern of reviewing characters specifically. This review is going to be shorter. Obviously, there's just not quite as much to talk about in this one. But I wanted to open by talking about Risen. And I wanted to get maybe a little personal on Phantology. This episode, we don't... uh, typically do this, but this had um, a lot of really good tie-ins for me personally, because like Risen, I happen to be disabled. Specifically, I'm a quadriplegic and have been for almost 10 years now. And Risen is a paraplegic. So, you know, not exactly the same thing as me. But I thought that there were a lot of tie-ins as far as what it's like to live life being disabled and a lot of the mental state that she was in and the things that she was concerned about and the things that she was working through and her identity, etc. I found it to be extremely accurate and very poignant 
and I got emotional several times reading it. Like I really liked the book and this is probably why because, you know, bravo to Brandon for actually representing disability in a fairly accurate way. And I don't see this a lot in fantasy and I could probably go on a rant on some things that I've seen in fantasy where it's like, and the person was healed at the end of the book. And you're like, seriously, I mean, that was their identity as being disabled. And now you're just going to heal them. Mm-hmm. And that just that, that's like borderline offensive to me, honestly. So I really liked Rissen. And, and Ben, I, I mean, you've known me for a while, so you kind of know um, some of my disability things. But uh, w- what were some things that you were thinking? About? I mean, you're, a, you're an able-bodied person. So how, how, what were you thinking about as you were reading through Rissen and her disabilities? Like, were you able to see some things and, and realize some things? Yeah. I mean, I guess like it was really cool for me, like seeing how Nickley was trying to figure out how to best help her. Cause I think that was also like, sure. it really accurately showed kind of the dynamics between like an able-bodied person trying to help, but also like trying to figure out the boundaries and, and having risen, try and figure out how to explain what those boundaries should be. You know what I mean? Like that was, really uh-huh. interesting to me as well and kind of struck home a little bit strange how he was actually like borderline the enemy but that was what right. got him to kind of accept humans a little bit more and, and was crucial and, and yeah I, I think that was a fairly accurate representation of of what i've seen as people try to help me in similar ways yeah and i mean poor nickley he like had to uh figure out how to be human <laughs> like in general right we know that's something that his people kind of struggle with yeah. As well as trying to figure out how to interact in a like hard social situation to begin with. So he kind of drew the short end of the stick there. But I knew going into it that Brandon had said that he wasn't going to heal her, right? So we kind of knew going into it that that was um, something that, that we would enjoy about it, right? Oh, did he actually say that? I, I wasn't sure. I, I just had faith that he wouldn't. I, right. I thought he would handle this the right way. Yeah. And so what was like... For you, what was the moment in the book that you knew that you were going to enjoy it? I mean, I, I imagine going into it, you would be pretty nervous. Like, I mean, you obviously have a lot of faith in Brandon and you knew that he had beta readers that were yeah. that were um, paraplegics that that read it and gave feedback. So you had to have some good faith going in. But what, what was the moment that you knew that it was handled well? Yeah, exactly what you said. I knew that there were Perez beta reading. So I really wasn't concerned. I, I really figured that this would be done well. So the moment for me was probably just the first chapter as she's sitting in her cabin or office or wherever that actually takes place. And she's just reflecting on she's reflecting on these ideas of like wanting to hide herself away and trying to deal with being disabled. And one of the things that really struck home for me was when she was thinking about the things that she needed and how to outfit the ship appropriately and how tired she was of people asking her, oh, why do you need that? Why do you need that? And that's something that I've totally seen because it's so frustrating when you need something done and you have to go to someone else to do it in the first place. You know, just that lack of independence in your life is really hard being disabled. Mm -hmm. And then it's even more frustrating when you know you're going to have to explain it to someone and you're going to have to explain it because there is this, it just shows the gulf in between you and an able-bodied person. And that is so frustrating. And I thought that was captured really well just in that one thing that she was thinking about. Yeah. I I enjoyed the fact that he put like what, so we know that Sanderson tries to stay away from a lot of internal dialogue, like an internal navel gazing. He tries to uh, do a lot of show, not tell. 
Yeah, he doesn't do that as much. Yeah, but he took some time in that first chap first chapter to to have some kind of internal dialogue from Risen to kind of set the stage for that. So I also enjoyed that. Was there anything that like you thought was too cheesy or could have been handled better? I have a part that I thought was cheesy, but I wanted to get your your thoughts on that. Honestly, as far as the the way that the disability stuff was handled, no. I thought it was handled really well. I as I don't know if there was anything cheesy. What what were you thinking of? So the part where Risen is figuring out her hovering chair and like all the crew kind of give her like a like a thumbs oh, okay. up or like a you yeah. know like fist in the air. I enjoyed the scene, but I didn't I thought it was cheesy. I enjoyed it and I wanted to like ask you about it. Like what do you thought about it? I can see how it might be a little cheesy, you know, the, the crew of these you know, tough, muscly sailor guys and, and gals are gathered around and cheering on Risen. But at the same time, I could see it happening. Mm-hmm. I could see it happening. You know, this is a huge moment for her where now she's able to get this independence. She breaks down emotionally when she realizes what is possible for her. Great moment. Totally would have done the same thing if I was in her situation. Because to think that you're bound in a chair and then all of a sudden you can move your own chair. I mean, I have a power wheelchair, so that isn't something that I've struggled with a ton. But actually, um, recently, I was on this vacation and I was taking a different wheelchair that broke. And as a result, I was kind of trapped in a loner chair where I couldn't maneuver myself around very well for a few days. And it was really tough. And I got pretty depressed. The fact that I was like on this vacation, but couldn't enjoy it as much as possible. So those types of feelings to think that like, okay, I'm stuck in here. I can't do what I want to. And then all of a sudden, now I can move around. That was really well done. Mm-hmm. As far as the crew cheering her on, yeah, maybe a little cheesy. But at the same time, I think it shows the connection that she was building with the sailors. And it yeah. you know, it shows a good connection between able-bodied and disabled and hopefully the relationship that we're building as a people. Yeah, okay. I, I agree with that. I also, one thing I really liked was by the end, and this is kind of going full spoilers, but by the end, she wasn't healed at all, but things had transcended her disability, right? Like when she was talking right. to Nikla, Nikli and, and his people, I don't know, what what are they called? The Dicerian? The Dicean Amians, the sleepless? Right. Like, I don't think her disability was mentioned one time in that conversation. You know what I mean? So like, it, like it was a huge part of her identity for, for most of the book. And then like at the very end, it was like, there's so much more going on here. And, uh-huh. and she's thought of as much more than that. Absolutely. So one of the things that we have to deal with in the way that Sanderson's doing this is this whole idea of like identity based healing and disability. Like Lopin is able to heal himself because he never really viewed himself as missing an arm, kind of questioning that, frankly. But for Rissen, you know, her identity was that she became disabled, right? She was a paraplegic, couldn't move herself around. And so you see from the beginning to the end of this book, she goes from that identity to now her identity is. She's still disabled, but she's able to do so much more. And it doesn't mean that she's not disabled anymore, but she also has all these other abilities. And so that's something that I've seen as well. Like I view my identity as totally someone who's disabled, but also despite my disability, I'm able to do all these other things. And I feel like that makes me so much more as a person. Like that's the probably the one thing that I'm proudest of in my life is that stretching past all the physical limitations. And so, yeah, at the end, you see that like her disability doesn't really matter because she has all these other talents 
and abilities. And so, yes, she's disabled, but that's just a part of her. There's so much more to her. Yeah, and I love how I love how characters in the book made a concerted effort. Uh, many of the characters did to not look down on her because of her disability, but you could also tell that they were having a hard time getting past it, right? Like even like the yeah. captain, like the captain had a negative opinion of her because she was like a bratty kid when she was sailing with her bats, right? Like, and the captain thought the ship would be hers and it wasn't. Right. So there's like a lot of stuff going into that. And, and by the end, I was really impressed that the captain was able to kind of like see past all of that. And also the, the fact that like she could have this disability and still be just as good of a leader as, as her um, former teacher was. Yeah, it was cool to see, you know, all the, there there was no one who was obviously uh negative or, or looking down on her because she was disabled, which is great. I mean, but let's try to avoid that, please. Yeah. yeah. But everyone was trying to accept her and, and and do the best that they could, but they didn't really know all the time. But they were doing some small things. Like when she went and talked to Navani, Navani pulled her chair over so they could sit next to each other and right. talk rather than standing. You know, that was a nice little effort. Rushu, the ardent, didn't really know I mean, she's oblivious in general. So there's a part where she comes over and starts grabbing her her chair and start starting to mess with it. And Rissa's yeah. like, hey, you need to ask me first. And she's like, oh, sorry, I didn't realize. And so you see that a lot in, in the real world. Like people in general are fairly nice to you as a disabled person. They want to help, but they don't know how. And so this is these were several examples of things you might see. Yeah. And I think Sanderson does a really good job with those minor characters. Oh, what was the artist's name? R- Rushu? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, like, you can tell that he's done a lot of thought into just her character alone in, in that interaction. You know what I mean? Like, even uh-huh. a relatively minor person, he, like, had thought through how she would interact um, with Risen. You know what I mean? And it kind of does show you the spectrum of people and, and their relationship with, with disability. So, we could probably talk about this for a while. I could, I could go on. I have a lot of thoughts on disability. Actually made a Reddit post that got some little bit little bit of traction, and so that was nice to see. The community is is very welcoming of this, uh, which makes sense for a Stormlight Archive community. But let's actually talk about some other elements of the yep. book as well. You know, the, there there was a lot to this one outside of of Risen, but that obviously was was the central theme, and I loved it. So, cheery cheery, we healed her at the end a little bit because she was dying or she was sick because she needed. To bond another Lux friend, I think Mandra is what they're called. They they need to bond bigger and bigger ones in order to support their huge size. Nice little uh, thing about how great shells work. And so she's going to continue to get bigger, right? And so a theory that I saw on Reddit that I love is that by the end of the series or at some point in the series, she's going to be large enough where Rissen and Chiri Chiri are going to be the first Larkin and Ryder pair and we're not going to have dragon riders in the series, but we are going to have Larkin riders, at least one. Yeah, that was awesome to kind of have that realization. And if you listen to our Rhythm of War prep episode, that will come as no surprise to you that that type of symbiotic relationship was something that was on their horizon too. Yeah, we definitely see the fact that Spren make these ginormous characters possible their size possible and we also know that gravity is 70 percent on warshar compared to earth ah yeah 
that allows Do for we know? Oh, nice trivia. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, well, there you go. I was that was also something I learned in our rhythm for preview chapter. The more you know. Yeah. Be- prepare for some great sh- like big flying things in the future. <laughs> for sure. Okay. So, Don Shard to go towards the end of the book. Yeah. So, what is a Don Shard? From what we understand, Adon Alcium was killed using the power of the Don Shards somehow. And there are four Dawn Shards, and each of the four have then four shards that are associated with it. Rissen has grabbed this one whose command is change. And this is kind of like a primal magic. My theory is that the Dawn Shards have the ability to control the other shards somehow. So everything that's associated with change, whatever four of those are, I'm not sure, but whatever four of those are, Rissen would be able to command them somehow, or maybe she probably doesn't know how, but she has the potential to. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. No, I, I think that that's true. I mean, so there's definitely like multiples of four happening here, right? Like, so there's four Dawn Shards, and each of those Dawn Shards are going to control four, four of the Shards for 16 total. And I think we can right. guess pretty closely which four the change command is going to control. I mean, we could probably guess some of them but we don't do we even know all 16 no we don't know all 16 i i don't think mm, we might know 16 by now sanderson has said in the past that he's been keeping a few of them intentionally vague because he hasn't decided on them okay he he has pretty good ideas but he wants to keep them open but like for example preservation would not be one of these that the change command would control and like probably not honor right Oh, is honor even yeah, a shard? Pr- prob- probably no. Honor's a shard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah pro- probably not those ones. But like Odium, probably cultivation. Probably not. Cultivation, I could see. Yeah, you're growing. Things are changing. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess maybe I, I we should have a list of these uh, shards that we're we've been exposed to, and I think it would be pretty obvious if we had that list in front of us. Maybe not though. So maybe there'll be some interaction between Risen and cultivation in the future. Yeah. Do we know when cultivation came to Roshar? I think the same time as honor in our uh, in my prep for that uh, rhythm of war preview episode, I believe it was the same time as honor. Like they Roshar was created by Adonalsium and he put things there and then they came there together as gods, I believe. Okay. Okay. Sorry. That was kind of a random question. And so we also learn at the end of John Shard how the command came to reside there, right? So it came through the perpendicularity that was at the... Came through cultivation's perpendicularity at the peaks. And we know that the Horn Eaters are some type of guardians at the gate or something. Like they have some... Like Cord seemed to think that that Nick Lee and his people would have known about some type of deal that was made between the Horn Eaters and another... We're not exactly who, who, sure who they made the deal with, right? Yeah, that was vague. And Nick and Cord okay. is kind of thinking back to the legends of her people. Right. Yeah. But there were some details there. One thing that we know that wasn't in this book, but we just know from words of Brandon, was that Hoyd was once a Don Shard, held a Don Shard, or I guess was one. The fact that he had the power made him one. And he is no longer, he's given it up somehow, but he's still considered like a Don Shard sliver. Like it's changed him fundamentally. And because of that, he cannot commit violence or eat meat. 
Oh, really? Which is why at the end of Oathbringer, he has to have someone else punch his own tooth out for him. Huh. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I don't think we know which Don Shard he was or really what the deal was there, but it's part of it. One of the theories about Hoyd that I like is he is trying to do something where he's just like gathering in all the different types of investiture and he doesn't want to get too committed to any one thing. So maybe that's why he gave up Don Shard. I don't know. Who knows what, what's going on with Hoyd? Right, because we know that that now Risen cannot bond a Spren, right? Like that's one of, part of the deal. Well, that it she seemed made. like she could, but they said you, the, in the uh, deal. Gotcha. Like so, she, mm-hmm. she wanted to, but they stipulated that as part of the deal. Okay, so I wonder, I wonder why that was so important for them, though, right? Like, so I just took it to be like they wanted to have her be a lower profile. If she was a Knight's Radiant, she's okay. more visible, but there could be more to it. Okay. Another theory that I saw on Reddit was the potential that Dalinar is also a Dawnshard because of the strange interaction he had with Cultivation. We talked about this a little bit in our Oathbringer review that came out earlier in the week. I don't know if I'm buying this one as much, but I could see a theory around it. Yeah. Okay, so I guess what did you think about the the way that this was all resolved with the deal being made and how they kind of just let let Risen walk away with it. Obviously it showed Risen's negotiation prowess and like throughout the book she was saying like you have to find the need and then like uh-huh. say how you're gonna fulfill that need. And so it was heavily foreshadowed and she was able to find the need to keep this safe and she said the only way to keep it safe was to give it to her. Right. Like that was the essence of the deal. Right. So are you trying to ask if I thought it was believable enough. <laughs> right. Like how realistic did you think it was? I mean, is it really safe with Risen kind of going around? I don't know. Like I thought Risen talked a good game, but I, w- I don't know if I would have been convinced. Yeah. I think this is a good example of, you know, Sanderson creates these worlds that are gray with a hint of optimism and things tend to work out in the end. If this was more of a grimdark story, like a, George R. R. Martin or Joe Abercrombie writing this, like the deal, no, this deal would not happen. But because characters have more of this like flavor of optimism, things like this are able to work out. And that's the writer, that, that's what he sets up. So I was fine with it. Although, yeah, a little bit of me was questioning like, really? You know, they had the potential, they've killed a lot of people before, they could just shut this down again. Right. I, but, but the fact that she, you know, held the Dawn Shard, obviously that, changed things for them right exactly because we're not exact that was also something that i think was left vague right was what happens if risen were to die what happens to the dawn shard would it just like yeah. be a honing this over back to the the mural for like whatever was keeping it there or would it just kind of go off just and float do? on her body like loot in a video game right yeah, exactly is. yeah that's interesting and and also you know the sleepless may have been thinking like oh she's the dawn shard you know she's got some power here she doesn't know how to use it but who knows there's a chance she could have gotten angry and blasted off something against them or you know yeah. they, they got to keep her happy a little bit i'm guessing yeah exactly i i agree with that it's one of the theories that that we've seen is that well i think it was explicitly stated right that don shard that it has the ability to end worlds right and so you got to be careful yeah with them. the theory is or was has this been confirmed no i'm actually not sure but uh, the Dawn Shard was used to destroy Ashen originally, our people over there, when the humans came to Roshar. 
Yeah, well, I mean, one thing we know that Nick Lee is very concerned about it falling into the wrong hands because it yes. is such a dangerous and powerful tool. And it's possible that all the world hopping and stuff that we've seen is related to this. I mean, this could have really big effects in the future. We'll see. Right. I mean, is Hoyt looking for this? He's probably interested in, in, in about this yeah. in, in this development. Yeah. So do we see Hoyt this book? I know he's I know it's kind of like a point of pride that he's been in like every cosmic yeah i actually don't think so i actually don't think so which was interesting they didn't mention him when cord was talking about the gods coming through the perpendicularity and everything hoyd was mentioned but i don't think we explicitly saw him unless it was a cameo somewhere it would have been easy to do with that scene with navani right like cord could uh would have just popped his head and made some snarky remark yeah that's strange so maybe we need to look for that again. Maybe people on Reddit have found him. Yeah. So, okay. So we've mentioned Cord a few times. What did you think about her and her mission to get the shard plate? And kind of, there was also some miscommunication there where at one point Risen thought that Cord just wanted money, but that seemed out of character for her. And it turns out the riches right. that she wanted was like protection for her people. I thought she was a decent character. I thought she characterized the Horn Eaters a bit more. We haven't seen hardly any of them outside of Rock. You know, she's a nice little patriot for her people. She wanted to do this in order to help them. And then uh, at the end of the day, it just kind of confuses me. Why can Rock not commit violence? I mean, I get it. Like she's he's got this oath or something not to. But we talked about this in our previous episode as well. The Rhythm of War hype one or the Oathbringer one. Maybe both. But I'm I'm just kind of confused by what's going on with Rock. Yeah, obviously, Cord made a point of saying that her father was some important figure, right? As part of that, uh-huh. and they talked about him being able to like draw the bow of ages or something, yeah, like that. Some important thing for them, which makes sense since we saw him wield the shard bow, which he shouldn't have been able to, right? And he uh, was a dead eye when he was firing up those pouches in Way of Kings to yeah help them escape. So. We know that Rock has a propensity for the bow. But yeah, I don't know. So we also know that Cord is going to be Risen's bodyguard, you know, going forward. So that's that's going to be an interesting dynamic. Crazy theory. What if Rock was the dude, the archer that Dalinar recruited onto his side in his vision, <laughs> who was able to shoot super well and super far? What if that was him? Crazy theory. Probably not, because I don't think they looked the same or talked the same at all. No. I don't know. That goes back to the Horn Eaters might have some type of a symbiotic relationship with Spren where they're not bonding them, but they might be working together with them in some other way. Yeah, they can see Spren. That's obviously important. These are the things that Sanderson does. He just tells you something like, oh, Horn Eaters can see Spren. And so you believe it. And then all of a sudden he flips it on your head and it's like, well, there's some crazy reason why they can that just blows your mind. And so these are the things we're looking for to not be fooled this time. So, okay, my other question about the book in general was how much of this book was dictated by Cosmere thoughts in general versus like the plot specifically. So like, for example, we the whole time we've talked, we haven't even mentioned the fact that like Nick Lee was assumed to be a friend and the like one of the big twists was that he was the one that was sabotaging everything, right? Like, so there's a lot of like kind of Sanderson specific things that happened where there's like twists and turns. But like that kind of got overshadowed by the very end. Yeah, I think so. The plot was fairly straightforward. You know, the pirates are on the mission to find the treasure. There's a traitor. But 
even Nickley being the traitor, like it was a it was told to you before it actually happened for the other characters, so it wasn't even really a twist. Right. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. So yeah, just to answer your question, I, I do think it was probably more fueled by the characters and by the Don Shard Cosmere stuff, and the plot was just kind of like a vehicle to get you there. So I mean I was fine with it, but maybe, you know, it could have been stronger. Okay, and then related to that, we've spent this whole time and we've hardly even mentioned Lopin. I mean, was he necessary here? Are you glad that he was kind of thrown in here? Like it definitely felt like Sanderson wrote the book for Risen and for this like adventure that she was going on and then thought, huh, yeah. you know, Lopin could work in here too. Yeah, and I think he made a good decision in doing that. We do we probably should mention that Sanderson wrote this on a really condensed timeline in order to get this thing out before Rhythm of War. So props to him. I think we maybe overlook some of like the weaker plot type of things and give him props for just getting the thing out in yeah, time for true. us to read it. Uh, but yeah, Lopen, I, I think Lopen works great here. And I, I can't remember if he was ever planning on the Lopen or if Lopen just took on a bigger role because he did say the book has gotten a lot larger since adding Lopen in. Yeah. But we already know Lopen fairly well. He's one of the better characterized Bridge Four guys. I thought the best moment with him was when he's joking with Risson and they were talking about joking about your disabilities and yeah. they were saying like, oh, you know, Risson shouldn't have to joke like that. That's inappropriate. And Lopen's like, yes, yeah, you shouldn't have to. Yeah. But do you do? You know, It's kind of something that uh, it's a disability strategy, honestly, right. to deal with people who are just uncertain with with who you are. And it's something that I've done quite a bit. So I thought it was great. And I mean, that goes back to like, Lopin's core personality, right, was like the one-armed Herdazian jokes, right? Like, so uh-huh. he's like, I guess, bound his personality to that type of defense or that type of coping mechanism or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, which is why I really don't understand why he was able to heal himself. I get that it's identity-based, but you don't lose an arm and continue to think of yourself as too armed. That yeah. just I just don't I don't I don't get that. I mean I I that's not my thing. I have not lost an arm. So let me know if yeah. if, if I'm wrong there. But that just seems strange. Yeah. I agree with that. I guess I didn't question it too much because that's part of like the privilege of being able bodied, right? Like you don't think too yeah. deeply about stuff like that. But I think I, it's I good. almost wonder if he got some feedback and was like right. that's what I was yeah. just gonna say. And and so, you know, this is why he's now have he has beta readers on that are subject matter experts. Yeah, so I agree that he might be doing a little bit of a course correction, maybe even like retconning the reason why Lopin was able to do it. You know what I mean? Possibly. So one thing I, if if Lopin wasn't necessary, I don't know about the Hoyo. Hoyo? Yeah, I don't know. I was unclear. Whenever I was reading about that, about Hoyo, I was like, this is not necessary here. Even though it did uh, set up a nice moment for Lopin at the end. Yeah, I think he was really just there in order to grow Lopin. In one of Sanderson's annotations that I happened to stumble upon, he was talking about the inspiration for Hoyo. And he said he's inspired by one time he was, I'm not going to remember all the details, but I think he believed he was somewhere in the Middle East doing a tour or something. And he had a driver and he was talking to the driver, comes to realize that this guy is super smart and he's got a PhD or, or some kind of degree. And, but he was unable to find work because of social strife and conflicts that just made it very difficult for him and he always he remembered this moment 
and thought that, you know, there's so many people that are much smarter than myself who are stuck in these types of of situations where it's, where it's difficult for them. So I think Hoyo was the inspiration there where he was this very smart, capable person, but he's always, you know, badgered by Lopin and, and just kind of struggled to, uh, I don't know, really, really make much of an impact. But then towards the end, you know, he was more of the hero. He was able to swear the ideal first and Lopin didn't take that very well. Yeah, no, that that's... So I guess I'm confused with that. I mean... Obviously, one of the defining moments of Hoyo was was breaking the, was it the span read that he was kind of tinkering with? Is is that yeah. just? I guess he's just a tinker, and that's an indication of his intelligence. I guess because I, I didn't know that story, so I'm kind of trying to fit what I know of him in there now. Yeah, they know that that's probably a good connection there. Like he's got, he's he's really smart. I guess he's not smart enough to fix the span read, but um, he he wants to get more into the industry a little bit, looking for that first job. Right. In tech, but having <laughs> yeah. trouble because of his identity. Yeah, he he submitted something to GitHub that was not well received. I guess. Yeah, yeah, having trouble getting that interview callback. <laughs> yeah. So okay, I I buy that, and that that also we should mention is what paved the way to figuring out this hover ability for low, for Risen's chair, and uh-huh. that will also go on to have larger uh, ramifications. Yeah, and then uh, with with that, I mean, we can talk about Nickley a little bit. I think one of the better moments there, or with the creepier moments, was when Nickley was like, "Oh, you found this technology that's going to help a lot of people. You should write to people right away and tell them what this is in case you don't survive." Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That really defined him, though, because he was not a bad person, but he was, you know, I guess committed to this idea that these guys are not going to survive. Right. This voyage, we cannot let them. Yeah, well, that was also that was always kind of a dichotomy with uh, with Nickley's personality. Is he was kind of this ambassador for humankind and trying to save the like save this vessel and like arguing on their yeah. behalf, like, hey, let me try one more thing, let me try one more thing. Okay, we'll put these false like treasure on the island, and hopefully they'll be satisfied with that. So he was like arguing on your behalf while while at the same time being like this creepy thing that you're kind of afraid of and know and know that that he will kill you if he needs to. Yeah. Overall with the with the Amians, I liked the characters. I thought the idea of, you know, having these these characters that are legion of different bodies and can communicate wirelessly, that that was cool. I think Sanderson said these were some of his more original character concepts that he finally got into the book a little bit more. I was maybe a little bit disappointed by Amia. It was always this huge mystery. What's out there. turns out there's a destroyed town that they've buried an oath gate underneath. The Dawn chart is awesome, obviously, but I don't know, maybe I was hoping for a little bit of a cooler location once they made it there. Right. I could see that kind of like a UR3 type location. Where there's like yeah the, uh, something else about the you know that there's nothing special about Amy at all other than the fact that the Dawn chart is there, right? Yeah, I, I or don't maybe know. I need a more there, detail. Like what happened to it? Why was it destroyed in the first place? We still don't know. Yeah, there might be something that happens because obviously there's an Oath Gate, and I don't think the people that built the Oath Gate there were looking for the Dawn chart. Yeah, yeah, knew that the Dawn chart was there. And now that there's the Oath Gate there, we know our characters will be back. Yeah, and that so was all more that potential. Was, that was one of the reasons why they knew that the Donchar wouldn't be 
you know, safe there is because it's only an oath gate away from the world now, you know? Yeah. I, I think that there's going to be something else that happens there. Some mysteries yet to be uncovered. All right. Anything else about Donshard? I think we, we talked through. Yeah, we talked through most of it. So the last question I want to have, and this is, so this book came about because a stretch goal was reached on Kickstarter, right? So my question is to you is like, how likely was this book not to have happened? You know what I mean? Like, was it ever not going to happen? Because it seems pretty necessary. Was the stretch goal that he would write it or just that you would get access to it? Oh, maybe just that you would get access to it. I'm not sure. I thought it was that he would write it. You know, he was probably always planning on doing it. I can't remember if it was a stretch goal or not. We could easily look into that. But let it, let us know. We'll look into that yeah, and, we'll and into brush that. up on that. I guess my over that goes back to my overall point, though, that like the book is necessary. Like You should read it. If for some reason you can't read it before Rhythm of War, definitely start Rhythm of War, but, but make sure you circle back and read this eventually. In my head, I'm thinking he always was planning on writing it because he's been doing a novella in between. I mean, he didn't do a novella in between Way of Kings and Words of Radiance, so he, it could have not happened. Well, I, but I mean, so far he's only done one novella, right? Like, so this is well, kind of making this is number two. Right, this is number two. So it's kind of making yeah making the pattern here, right? Yeah, I mean, now he's got to keep on going. He's he's said he's he's out there saying that the uh, novella four point five is going to be rock. What do you think the 1.5 would be if he went back and retroact- retroactively wrote one? Ooh, something that was important for Words of Radiance in a small way. I'm thinking something with Shallan, right? I think that well, she but, could... But the novellas are not, they're, they're not main characters. They're, they're the side mm-hmm. characters. Yeah. Well, maybe let us know what you think on Twitter or on on Discord. Maybe like, like a Renarin thing. I feel like Renarin needs more. Oh, Renarin could be good. Time on screen, you know, Renarin bonding Gliss or, or something like that. You know, when did that even happen? Because that was huge in Words of Radiance when he was seeing the future. And so, if there yeah. was some story that kind of hinted at that a little bit more. Yeah, I like that. So, one point five, Phantology guarantee is that is that if he was to do it, he would do Renarin bonding Gliss. Phantology guarantee. <laughs> Nice. All right. Let me just end by saying, Yalb, you're still alive, man. Salute <laughs> to you. Way to well, go. Well, you and three other, two other, three other people. I mean, we've got to have like a survivor club. Yeah. Yeah. Sanderson has got a little bit of flack for not ever killing anyone. And this is yet another example. It's like, dude, I mean, this was a fine death, you know, minor character that was a little bit lovable. He dies. But he's back again. <laughs> he's back again. I guess it's somewhat believable, given that Shallan survived the shipwreck, that somebody, like a few other people would have, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to actively kill characters, but <laughs> yeah. at some point you got to let him go a little bit. moved on, to y- uh, on from y'all. He could have just... I, I bet that he'll have some other importance later on. Hopefully he helps us buy more books. That was my favorite part of Shallan's storyline thus far. All right. If you like Phantology, you can find more of us online at www.phantologybooks.com. We'll be covering a lot more Stormlight, so look forward to that. Rhythm of War, as we are recording right now, comes out tomorrow in, well, in eight and a half hours now. Woo! If we wanted to stay up till midnight and, uh, and read the night away. We're probably not going to do that. We're going to take our time, enjoy it, and get episodes out for each of the different parts. Couldn't be more pumped. 2020 is 
finally redeeming itself a little bit here with some nice stormlight uh, stormlight information that we've been waiting years for. So thanks for doing this with me, Ben. Yeah, thanks, Steven.